Welcome to another edition of the Rare Possessions Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Galetti, and with me is Jared Riddick from Book of Mormon Central. Glad to be here. How's your job going as archivist, by the way? You're loving it. I'm loving it. I'm also in grad school right now, and uh, it's it's been a trick as an online program to, to balance everything while I'm working full-time. Uh, yeah, I believe it. But it's going really good. Cool. It's going really good. Cool. Well, we have another gem that you've selected from the Book of Mormon Central Archives. I love this one. And uh, for those that don't know how they can reach the archives of Book of Mormon Central to do some interesting perusing of their own, it's just archive.bookofmormoncentral.org. Yep. And uh, this is where you can find... Jared's endless hours of work that he has put into this. As of recording, 4,698 items on the Book That's of Mormon Central Archive. Incredible. Yeah. So this one is the letter to the Queen of England composed by Parley P. Pratt. We have records essentially showing that this was originally composed in 1901. And well, it was printed in 1901. Printed in 1901. Yeah. Um, composed probably about 1841 or just shortly thereafter. Correct. Thank you for clarifying that. I I misspoke. That's why I'm here. Yeah, that's right. It's true. So this uh, this has some interesting history to it, and we'll then we'll get into how and why this is such a unique, bold effort. Yeah, because you know when you when you see a member of the Corner of the Twelve meeting with a, a world leader today, uh, it's usually civilized. We give them a copy of their family history. Right. Say a prayer with them. You know, this is a little people, different. You don't see them calling them to repentance too often. And and essentially saying that your kingdom could be disappearing, but we'll go we'll go Ironically. into that a little bit later. Ironically, um, uh, so prophecy came to pass. What's the, <laughs> what's the history that we know of this? So Queen Victoria is a very young monarch at this point. Uh, she's probably been on the throne uh, no more than four years. Um, so this was given to Queen Victoria and Prince Albert. We don't know that they actually ever received it themselves. I feel like there was a filter that might have gotten it there. We do know that— It wasn't in person. It certainly wasn't in person. And uh, I can't—if it was in person, probably people out would have done an excellent job to escape with his life. Or to document that or to do- he did it. <laughs> he did it. Um, but we know that in the letter he mentions that President Brigham Young had, had through Lorenzo— Elder, Elder Lorenzo Snow, young missionary, presented two— uh, Copies of the Book of Mormon to Queen Victoria and Prince Albert as a gift. In person. That was in, per- in person. Supposedly in person, according to Lorenzo Snow's uh, journals, which I think is amazing. So they were at least aware of the Book of Mormon's existence on and, some level. On some level. And, and I wonder if they were also aware of it on a political level because of the fact how many British citizens were leaving the kingdom to head to America. For this reason. Uh, mm-hmm. For, for this, this cause. Reason. It's something they would have been aware of, and I think it would be good for them to be aware of it, just to be aware of what's going on inside of their kingdom. But uh, Parley... If Parley was alive today, he would probably be considered an internet troll for his usual method of uh, communicating. <laughs> if you've ever read his responses to uh, to anti to ministers, not even sometimes anti Mormon, but to ministers, he goes right for the ad hominem. He goes right for the person saying like, if "We we only could understand your argument if our head was defected and things like that." He was brutal, <laughs> and so he frankly shows for himself admirable restraint. In this letter from his usual want. Which is interesting because it is incredibly bold. It is. And and I would say it's lengthy for a letter. It's yes. not exactly pleasantries. It's it goes right into doctrinal doctrine and history. Right. So I mean the first paragraph it it's you know, it talks about it has fallen to the lot of your majesty 
to not only uh, live in a most eventful period of the world, but to occupy a station the most conspicuous of that of any individual of the present age. And I think Victoria's empire, you could probably say, covered a quarter of the globe at this point. It was a very dominant yeah. political figure. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, he, he tries to start off with some cordiality, and I would say that he doesn't directly call her evil, Which per se, uh, but he has some interesting themes throughout this. But what's the role of the Book of Mormon in his letter? It, it's really he starts off with a lengthy uh, summary of uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Yeah, which I find interesting. Which I do too. Which is interesting. Now that I'm thinking about it, while I'm thinking about this, on my mission, I ran into a a brother who had served in the early 1950s, and there was a missionary lesson back then on Nebuchadnezzar's dream that you had to give. Interesting. One of 26 lessons Boy. that he had to give in his mission in the American South at that time. But uh, this clearly featured more for them than it does for us. But he, yeah, he goes summarizing that and summarizing the empire. He calls like Victoria's empire one of the ten toes of the statue in Nebuchadnezzar's yeah. dream. Clearly, you're one of the things that are going to be destroyed. Yeah, and is, how the Book of Mormon it enters in probably about halfway. Would you say about halfway through? Yeah, enters in as the fulfillment of prophecy and something she should become aware of, and something that would pretty uh, frankly like harken towards the end of her empire if she wasn't careful. It was a. Uh, Oh no, he he pretty much came out and said that it's going to end. Yeah, it's not even not even not even veiled, like you said. It's pretty apparent this will be the end of your empire. Right, which is uh, again, I'm For not entirely sure what he thought was going to be the end result. In fact, like, I almost like, wish oh, I, I could ask him. Are you just fulfilling an assignment and burning the bridge while you're doing it? So yeah. You don't have to come back and do this. Like, are you naturally this bold? Did you expect her to respond and say, "Oh, so thank you so much"? Going by Parley's Parley's history, I would just say he is that bold. Right. And the boldness had served him well. It feels a little like he's fulfilling an assignment so that he doesn't have the blood of her sins on his hands kind of idea. That is a way I had not thought of it. Um, because at this point, I I don't think he ever felt that he had any expectations of a response. Um, I mean, he never says anything to the effect of, I really hope that we open communications and discuss the way that our church can roll forward in your kingdom. It's not diplomatic in that sense. And judging by the way the saints is... Uh uh, interactions to government with governments to that point had gone. This is actually going pretty well. <laughs> There's no extermination order yet. That, well, that's true. That's true. So he does go into eventually, uh, you know, he talks about how Noah even, he, Noah gets brought into the equation of, hey, let's, let's keep with this theme of wicked worlds that don't follow God's prophets. Well, you have the opportunity now. There has been a prophet restored restored to the earth. Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon is a sign of that. So kind of get in line in a a way. Um, I'm not sure if there's any one particular quote that says that, but it's certainly the theme. I I, I write fiction a lot for fun, and my natural fiction writer, I love to alternate history, like, what if? What if this had worked? (laughs) She probably would have been deposed, but what if this had worked? (laughs) Well, and, and again, when you try and ask yourself what did Parley think was going to come of this, again, I, I don't have any thoughts from, from this record itself that he anticipated that she would be converted right away, but it was, again, a voice of warning. It was a shock. Who is this guy, and what is he talking about that's so openly bold? Almost maybe this will get someone's attention. It may not even be the queen, but it'll get someone's attention, and that could also be worth it. Mm-hmm. He talks about the translation of the Book of Mormon. He talks about Nephi and the people that come to the American continent. This is, like I said, it's it's a lengthy 
document. It gives a rather lengthy quotation from Nephi, too. Yeah, he quotes a huge section of it as a way of saying, see, see how clear, see how clear it is that it's talking about, you know, our need to repent. And and this this is what I find rather interesting and fun, given the boldness with which he has spoken before this. His last little bits is, with sentiments of profound respect and with the most anxious desire for the welfare and prosperity of the sovereign and people of England, I have the honor to subscribe myself, your majesty's humble servant. Well, I don't know what Parley thinks servants are supposed to do, but they're not supposed to tell their their master or their sovereign that they need to repent or their kingdom is going to be destroyed. Yeah, he goes, I, I must close this letter by forewarning the sovereign and people of England in the most affectionate manner Yes, to repent and turn to the Lord with full purpose of heart. Um, yeah, and, yeah, then, I, and, and I, I think that is, again, his way of trying to say, I realize how bold I am, but understand I'm really doing this from a place of love. Yeah. Which he probably was. He was a missionary he was a in good one. England there. And anybody that served their people, that you do grow in affection towards them. You, you may also grow in some frustration towards their lack of humility in some cases. But, yeah. But uh, this we is all definitely— all had frustrations with, mission, with uh, investigators that didn't keep their commitments. <laughs> That's right. And she's—the Queen of England's not keeping her commitments. But this was printed in pamphlet form. Mm-hmm. And this was circulated. It was. And which is an interesting thing to circulate. Not just in England, in India, too. Exactly, which is where there was some interesting history and sentiment towards the British Empire and the Queen at that time. So this this almost might be, could be viewed as very subversive politically. Mm-hmm. I don't know that, again, he meant it to be that way, but in our modern world, this would appear to be rather subversive type propaganda in some respects. It would. It's a... That's a really interesting angle that I hadn't considered before, the, the political implications of this statement. And are we are we to include this as any type of prophecy? As is he speaking as an apostle, giving a revelation or prophecy? I would say he is. It's interesting. Uh, England largely escaped the revolutions in 1848. Um, the things that happened there through the work of Prince Albert and the Queen. British history in the 19th century is very interesting. Uh, they held on to their – they wouldn't really lose their empire until the end of the First World War. But they definitely have insurrections within it in India, notably. Yeah. And other places. I would say you would see some of these prophecies fulfilled. And maybe some people would even argue that but Brexit not, is part of this. They could. <laughs> but uh, I don't know British politics well enough to commentate on that one comfortably. I just watch British panel shows and comedies. There you go. Um, but I, I think it's very interesting. Yeah. It's a very interesting thing. It's because we have so much distance now from when this originally was put out. We can we can view it with very different lens than, yeah, than what it was happening. Yeah, Parley's condemnation would appear at the height of arrogance. This upstart colonial church uh, is condemning uh, an empire that's at the height of its power. I mean, yeah. they're only a few years off the Napoleonic Wars. The British Empire rules the waves. Their infantry is some of the best in Europe. Yeah. Um, even though they don't have the numbers. I mean, no one had the numbers to compete with Russia. But they were... They were to be feared. Right. And, and so this yeah. is, again, contextually, this is a very interesting piece, but it's also something that we as modern Latter-day Saints can look back on and, and find to be uh, rather informative in, in a number of ways. Um, so here we go now with a reading of Letter to the Queen of England by Elder Parley P. Pratt. Letter to the Queen of England Touching the Signs of the Times and the Political Destiny of the World by Elder Parley P. Pratt 
to Her Gracious Majesty Queen Victoria, Sovereign of Britain. It has fallen to the lot of Your Majesty not only to live in a most eventful period of the world, but to occupy a station the most conspicuous of that of any individual of the present age. It has pleased the Almighty Disposer of Events who governs and rules among the kingdoms of the earth to raise Your Majesty, while in the morning of life, to a throne of power at the head of an empire which, in many respects, stands foremost among the nations and kingdoms of the world. It is with feelings of that profound respect which is justly due to so high an office that I offer this address. The importance of the subject and the obligation which I am under to the God whom I serve and to the people of the age in which I live are the only apologies which I offer for thus intruding upon the attention of Your Majesty. Know assuredly that the world in which we live is on the eve of a revolution, more wonderful in its beginning, more rapid in its progress, more powerful in its operations, more extensive in its effects, more lasting in its influence, and more important in its consequences than any which man has yet witnessed upon the earth. A revolution in which all the inhabitants of the earth are vitally interested, both religiously and politically, temporally and spiritually. One on which the fate of all nations is suspended, and upon which the future destiny of all the affairs of the earth is made to depend. Nay, the angels have desired to look into it, and heaven itself has waited with long expectation for its consummation. I will now proceed to show from the scriptures first what this revolution is, second, that the present is the time of its fulfillment. The first great and universal monarchy after the deluge was the kingdom of Babel, or Babylon. This was founded by Nimrod on the plains of Euphrates and continued to strengthen itself until the time of Nebuchadnezzar, whom the Lord raised up to be his servant, to execute his vengeance upon the nations. By a series of the most striking prophetic declarations of Jeremiah the prophet and others, and their no less striking fulfillment, this monarch marched forth, conquering and to conquer, till Tyre, Egypt, and Judea and all the surrounding nations were subdued and brought into captivity for seventy years. This was so extensive that Daniel the prophet exclaimed to the king of Babylon, The God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom, power, strength, and glory, and wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the fields and the fowls of the heaven, hath he given into thine hand, and hath made thee ruler over them all. This monarch standing at the head of nations and swaying his scepter over the nations of the world, was the favored instrument to whom the Almighty made known his purposes touching the government of the world in all succeeding ages. While resting upon his bed in the deep silence of midnight, when the busy world was lost in slumbers, and wearied nature hushed to silence and repose, an ancient inquiry arose in his mind in regard to the things which should come to pass hereafter. His mind roamed down through the dark vista of future and distant periods, and would fain have understood and contemplated the events of the latter day. Thus lost in contemplation, and overwhelmed in deep sleep, his mind was suddenly caught from the subject of his meditation, and the visions of heaven were opened to his view. A great image stood before him. His head was of fine gold, his breast and arms of silver, his belly and thighs of brass his legs of iron, and his feet and toes part of iron and part of clay. He beheld till a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, which smote the image upon the toes. Then was the whole image broken into pieces and became like the shaft of the summer threshing floors, 
and the winds blew it away, but the stone became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. When the king awoke from this vision, he sent for his wise men, but none of them could unfold unto him his dream and the meaning thereof, till Daniel was forthcoming with his striking declaration, There is a God in heaven that revealeth secrets. This man of God then proceeded to tell the dream and the interpretation thereof. The head of gold represented Nebuchadnezzar and the kingdoms over which he reigned. The breast and the arms of silver represented the Medes and Persians, who next succeeded in the government of the world. The belly and thighs of brass represented the empire of Alexander and his successors, this being the next in succession. The legs of iron represented the Roman Empire, which was the fourth great monarchy of the world. And the feet and toes of iron and part of clay represented the dissolution of the Roman Empire and its subdivision into kingdoms of modern Europe, as they now exist in their divided state partially Roman and partially Protestant, and not cleaving one to another, even as iron and clay will not adhere or unite in mutual strength. Of course, then, the government of England is one of the toes of this image. Now, in the days of these kings or kingdoms, represented by the feet and toes, the God of heaven should set up a kingdom which should not be left to other people, but should break in pieces all these kingdoms and stand forever as represented by the little stone. This is the interpretation which the God of heaven himself gave to Daniel, and which Daniel has given in the scriptures, and England has given the scriptures to the world, thus actually revealing to the world its destiny and her own. But before we can proceed further, we shall go back and take another view of the same subject, as revealed to Daniel on another occasion and under a different figure. He saw, Daniel chapter 7, these same four kingdoms, the Babylonians, Medes, and Persians, Greeks, and Romans, rise and reign in succession under the figure of four beasts. Out of the four beasts he saw, under the figure of ten horns, ten kingdoms arise, which are the same that the feet and toes represented, the kingdoms of modern Europe. And he beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, and judgment was given to the saints, and the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. Again, he said, the saints of the Most High shall take the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. Again, the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Again he says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven, and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. The kingdom so often spoken of in the seventh chapter of Daniel is evidently the same that is represented by the stone, which smote the image as recorded in the second chapter. From this it appears that this new kingdom will be established over the whole earth to the destruction of all other kingdoms by nothing less than the personal advent of the Messiah in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, but preceded by a personage called the Ancient of Days. The fourteenth chapter of Zechariah confirms this testimony 
by predicting that the Lord will stand with his feet on the Mount of Olives, that he shall come and the saints with him, and that in that day there shall be one Lord, and his name one, and he shall be king over all the earth. The revelation of John bears the same testimony, saying, The kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdoms of our God and his Christ. There are many other scripture illustrations of the same subject, which would be extremely interesting to your majesty and to the world, but these must suffice. From all these facts so clearly set forth in the scriptures, I feel warranted in saying that as sure as all these events have succeeded each other from the days of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, until the days of Victoria I on the throne of Great Britain, so sure will that portion be fulfilled which is yet future and which relates to the casting down of thrones, the termination of the political and religious establishments of the earth, and the setting up of a new and universal kingdom under the immediate administration of the Messiah and his saints. Connected with the ushering in of this new era will be the restoration of Judah and Israel from their long dispersion. They will come home to their land and rebuild Jerusalem and the cities of Judea and rear up the temple of their God. This city will be the seat of empire for the eastern world and all the surrounding nations for the next thousand years at least. This restoration will take place by a series of miracles, signs, wonders, revelations, judgments, etc., which will far exceed the dispensation of Moses and the deliverance of Israel from Egyptian bondage. With this revolution will be connected the resurrection of the saints that have slept. A physical change also awaits the earth at this time. The mountains will be thrown down, the valleys exalted, the rough places will become smooth and the crooked places straight, the barren deserts fruitful, and the parched ground well watered, and even the beasts of prey will be wrought upon by the Spirit of God, will lose their thirst for blood and become perfectly harmless, feeding only upon vegetable food. Isaiah and others have written upon these things so extensively that it would be needless for me to give the quotations. Connected with this restoration will be judgments and signs in heaven above and earth beneath, which will distress the nations by famine, pestilence, sword, tempests, hail, earthquakes, floods, and whirlwinds, which will finally terminate in a fire, as fatal to all the proud and them that do wickedly, as the flood in the days of Noah and the fire that fell upon Sodom. Then, as Noah was a survivor of a world destroyed, and himself and family the sole proprietors of the earth, so will the saints of the Most High possess the earth and its whole dominion, and tread upon the ashes of the wicked. I now come to the second part of my subject, the time of its fulfillment. The apostles were in expectation of its immediate fulfillment, while Jesus was yet with them until he taught them better. They inquired of him, saying, Wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom of Israel? But he answered them, saying, It is not for you to know the times and seasons which the Father hath put in his own power, as much as to say that it was no part of their mission and was not to be fulfilled in their day. So being corrected in this thing, the Apostle Peter afterwards informs us that the heavens must receive Jesus Christ until the times of restoration of all things spoken of by the Lord, by the holy prophets, and that the times of restitution God would send him again. Jesus himself speaks of this same time when he says, Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Paul also comes to the same point of time. Blindness in part is happened to Israel 
until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. These texts all have an allusion to one and the same time, the revolution of which we have spoken. The Lord, after speaking of the signs of his coming, says, When ye see these things begin to come to pass, then know that the kingdom of God is nigh at hand. And then says that the generation who are witnesses of these signs beginning to come to pass will not pass away till all shall be fulfilled, including his second coming and kingdom. Now, the kingdom of God here spoken of cannot possibly allude to the kingdom which was set up in the days of the apostles, for that kingdom was already at hand when the Savior predicted these things, and was set up immediately after his resurrection and without the signs spoken of in the 21st chapter of Luke having come to pass. Therefore, he must have alluded to the kingdom of which Daniel and others spoke, which was to be set up in the days of these kings, as represented by the feet and toes of the image. And it is well known to your majesty, and to all Christendom, that these ten kingdoms, out of the ruins of the Roman Empire, did not arise until many hundred years after the days of the apostles. Let us here enumerate the signs spoken of, which are to precede the Messiah's second coming, and upon the setting up of his kingdom. There shall be signs in the sun, and in the moon, and in the stars, and in the earth, distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them for fear, and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth. For the powers of heaven shall be shaken, and then shall they see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. I beg, leave barely to remind your majesty that these signs have for the last ten years been fulfilling in the eyes of all people. I need not here particularize or point out their fulfillment, for passing events are too notorious to be hidden. I now beg leave to call the attention of your majesty to an important discovery which has poured a flood of light upon these subjects, and which has actually revealed and demonstrated that the present age is the time of their fulfillment. I allude to the discovery of an ancient record among the antiquities of America, a copy of the translation of which was lately presented to your majesty, and another to his royal highness, Prince Albert, by Mr. Brigham Young. The discovery of this record, and the things connected with it, as they are now ushering in upon the world, are of more importance than any single event which has transpired in modern times. The discovery of America by Columbus 300 years since opened a new era upon the world and poured a flood of light upon the nations. They awoke from the slumber of ages and gazed with astonishment and wonder. As the first transports of admiration subsided, a spirit of enterprise seized the people and a new impulse was given to the minds of men, which has resulted in mighty changes in the scientific, commercial, and political departments, and which has mainly contributed in forming all the great outlines of modern character. But it remained for the 19th century to open a treasure of knowledge and to present to the world a discovery more extensive in its information, more glorious in its intelligence, and of greater magnitude in its final bearing upon men and things than all the discoveries of Columbus and his contemporaries. I allude to this ancient American record. By this means, the history of the past in relation to half the world has been opened as far back as the confusion of languages at Babel. By this means, the history of the past in relation to half the world has been opened as far back as the confusion of languages at Babel. A nation whose bones are dried and whose ruined temples and monuments have reposed for ages in silent, solemn, and awful grandeur 
has now spoken from the dust and revealed to the world their history, and with it their prophecies and their testimony of Jesus as the risen Messiah and the Savior of the world, not of Asia only, but of America also. From this record we learn the astonishing fact that the gospel was revealed among the ancient inhabitants of that continent, and the risen Jesus ministered in person to them, setting in order all the offices and ordinances of his kingdom, and opening all the great outlines of his doctrine, together with the knowledge of the future, down to the time of restoration of which we have spoken. By this means we are enabled to come to a knowledge of these points of doctrine and prophecy, and to understand clearly that which has been rendered obscure by coming down to us through the Dark Ages, robbed of its plainness by priestcraft and superstition, and mingled with the traditions of men. By this means we are enabled to understand definitely the signs of the times, and how and when the prophecies are to be fulfilled in relation to the great revolution so clearly set forth in this letter. And by this means we understand the fate of the world and the destiny to which the nations are hastening. The ancient record was discovered in 1827 in western New York, in the bowels of the earth, where it had been concealed for 1,400 years. It was there deposited by a holy prophet, whose name was Moroni, in order to preserve it, at a time when a great nation was overthrown. It was translated and published in English in 1830. Since that time, it has been a principal means in the hands of God of working a greater revolution among men than was ever known in so short a time. It has given rise to the Church of Christ of Latter-day Saints, which was first or- which was first organized with six members on the 6th of April, 1830, but which now numbers many thousands both in America and Europe. This church professes to hold to the ancient order of the gospel, as revealed both in the Bible and in this American record. They discard infant baptism as an invention of priestcraft and hold to the baptism of penitent believers for remission of sins and to the gift of the Holy Ghost by the laying on of hands in the name of Jesus and to the gifts of healing, prophecy, miracles, etc., as Jesus promised in his word. The church of the saints thus organized upon the ancient order, and faith once delivered to the saints, must grow and flourish and spread among all nations, and must increase in faith and power and might and glory, until, as a bride adorned for her husband, she is prepared for her coming Lord and for the marriage supper of the Lamb. Perhaps a few words of one of the prophets as contained in this ancient record will serve to show what is at hand to be fulfilled in plainer terms than any modern style of language can express. From the 57th page of the first book of Nephi, as contained in this ancient record, I extract the following. The Lord will proceed to make bare his arm in the eyes of all the nations in bringing about his covenants and his gospel unto those who are of the house of Israel. Wherefore, he will bring them again out of captivity, and they shall be gathered together to the lands of their inheritance, and they shall be brought out of obscurity and out of darkness, and they shall know that the Lord is their Savior and their Redeemer, the Mighty One of Israel. And the blood of that great and abominable church, which is the whore of all the earth, shall turn upon their own heads, for they shall war among themselves, and the sword of their own hands shall fall upon their own heads and they shall be drunken with their own blood. And every nation shall war against thee, O house of Israel, shall be turned one against another, and they shall fall into the pit which they dig to ensnare the people of the Lord. And all that fight against Zion shall be destroyed, 
and that great whore who hath perverted the ways of the Lord, yea, that great and abominable church, shall tumble to the dust, and great shall be the fall of it. For behold, saith the prophet, the time cometh speedily, that Satan shall have no more power over the hearts of the children of men. For the day soon cometh, that all the proud, and they who do wickedly, shall be as stubble. And the day cometh, that they must be burned. For the time soon cometh that the fullness of the wrath of God shall be poured out upon all the children of men, for he will not suffer that the wicked shall destroy the righteous. Wherefore, he will preserve the righteous by his power, even if it so be that the fullness of his wrath must come, and the righteous must be preserved, even unto the destruction of their enemies by fire. Wherefore, the righteous need not fear, for thus saith the prophet, they shall be saved, even if it so be as by fire. Behold, my brethren, I say unto you, that these things must shortly come. Yea, even blood and fire and vapor of smoke must come, and it must needs be upon the face of the earth. And it cometh unto men according to the flesh, if it so be that they harden their hearts against the Holy One of Israel. For behold, the righteous shall not perish, for the time surely must come, that all who fight against Zion shall be cut off. And the Lord will surely prepare a way for his people unto the fulfilling of the words of Moses which he spake, saying, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you, like unto me. Him shall ye hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you. And it shall come to pass that all those who will not hear that prophet shall be cut off from among the people. And now I, Nephi, declare unto you that this prophet of whom Moses spake was the Holy One of Israel. Wherefore he shall execute judgment in righteousness, and the righteous need not fear, for they are those who shall not be confounded. But it is the kingdom of the devil which shall be built up among the children of men, which kingdom is established among them, which are in the flesh, for the time speedily shall come, that all churches which are built up to get gain, and all those which are built up to get power over the flesh, and those which are built up to become popular in the eyes of the world, and those who seek the lusts of the flesh and the things of the world, and to do all manner of iniquity, year and fine, all those who belong to the kingdom of the devil, are they who need fear and tremble and quake. They are those who must be brought low in the dust. They are those who must be consumed as stubble. And this is according to the words of the prophet. And the time cometh speedily that the righteous must be led up as calves of the stall, and the Holy One of Israel must reign in dominion and might and power and great glory. And he gathereth his children from the four quarters of the earth, and he numbereth his sheep, and they know him. And there shall be one fold and one shepherd, and he shall feed his sheep, and in him they shall find pasture. I have given the above extract from this ancient prophecy in order that your majesty and the people of your dominion may be aware of future events which are nigh even at the door. I must close this letter by forewarning the sovereign and people of England in the most affectionate manner to repent and turn to the Lord with full purpose of heart. When I say repent, I mean my message for the lords, nobles, clergy, and gentry, as well as sovereign and people. Let them deal their bread to the hungry, their clothing to the naked. Let them be merciful to the poor, the needy, the sick and the afflicted, the widow and the fatherless. Let them set the oppressed free and break every yoke. In order to be able the more effectively to do this, let them dispense with their pride, extravagance, 
their luxury and excesses. For the cries of the poor have ascended to heaven, their groans and tears have ascended before the Lord. His anger is kindled, and he will not always permit their sufferings to go unnoticed. In short, let them bring forth fruits, meet for repentance, and come and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of sins, and then shall they receive the Holy Spirit and become the saints of the Most High, the children of light, and signs shall follow them that believe. The sick shall be healed in the name of Jesus, devils shall be cast out, the deaf shall hear, and the dumb shall speak, and the poor shall have the gospel preached unto them. Now if the rulers, clergy, and people of England hearken to this message, they shall have part in this glorious kingdom so clearly set forth in this letter. But if they will not hearken to the words of the prophets and the apostles, they will be overthrown with the wicked and perish from the earth. The Lord God of Israel hath sent his angel with this message to the children of men, to them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come, and worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. With sentiments of profound respect, and with the most anxious desire for the welfare and prosperity of the sovereign and people of England, I have the honor to subscribe myself, Your Majesty's humble servant. Signed, Parley P. Pratt, Manchester, May 28, 1841. Thank you for listening to the Rare Possessions podcast from the archives of Book of Mormon Central. Please tune in each week for another new episode of Rare Possessions with your host Nick Galetti and Jared Riddick, archivist from Book of Mormon Central.